Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Are the walls finally starting to close in on the big guy? Well, one man who resides in a mansion in Sacramento, California, is so excited, his hair might just even move as he jumps for joy. But make no mistake, Joe will be done when the Democrat machine tells him he's done. Not a minute before and not a minute after. The show starts now. Quote, I am sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand and now means tonight. And Z, if I get a call or text from anyone involved in this other than you, Zhang or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father, end quote. There it is, folks, the threatening WhatsApp message hunter, the smartest man Joe knows, sent to a Chinese communist business associate in 2017, demanding payment or else. And wouldn't you know it, just days later, five million bucks drops into the bank account like magic. And unless there is an episode of Maury Povich we're all unaware of, Hunter's father, the man in the room, is Joe Biden, former vice president and current president, who has said and lied repeatedly that he has and had no knowledge of his son's foreign business dealings. We know this thanks to supervisory IRS agent Gary Shapley, who testified before Congress last week that federal agents had evidence Hunter failed to pay about $2.2 million in taxes dating to 2014, and they planned to pursue multiple felonies before they were thwarted by political appointees of the Injustice Department. In fact, Shapley said the meddling was so egregious there is no way of knowing if evidence of other criminal activity existed concerning Hunter Biden or President Biden. That meddling included refusal to approve search warrants as well as specific indictments sought in both D.C. and L.A., plus allowing statute of limitations to expire on some serious offenses. So yeah, this is exactly what it sounds like. Hunter is a crook, Joe is a crook, and our Injustice Department and FBI have been doing the most to allow and cover up for the crookery. The Bidens, man, they're just like the Clintons but without that blue dress. And what's worse? Both families are so brazen and shameless, they flaunt it in front of our faces as if to say, catch me if you can. Just one day after this bombshell testimony and a few days after Hunter's sweetheart plea deal for tax evasion and illegal possession of a firearm, Joe, Hunter, and Merrick Garland attend a state dinner before Joe and his crackhead son depart on a weekend getaway to Camp David. How on God's green earth is Joe able to get by without having to make a statement or give any comment on the latest in his family corruption? This is unfreaking believable. It's infuriating. But I cling to the optimistic hope that the walls are closing in on the big guy. And if there is a shred of hope left for our justice system, the House of Cards will fall. Joining me now with more and what's next is the Congresswoman from New York, member of the House Ways and Means Committee, Representative Claudia Tenney. 
Congresswoman, it is so great to have you on such an important month for revelations that are coming out about the Biden crime family. So I just want to go right into it. When you saw this WhatsApp message, were you shocked? What was going through your mind when you guys uncovered this, which is should be the biggest bombshell to date? Uh, not shocked at all. This is just more confirmation of what we knew that was revealed in the laptop from hell by Miranda Devine that was held by the FBI for about a year prior to it even being disclosed. And by the way, the whistleblower testimony, uh, the two whistleblowers, one that is named and one that chose not to be named, uh, that were released on Thursday out of the Ways and Means Committee in a, in a special executive session, uh, reveals that this all this information was known uh, by the FBI and the DOJ. And, and, and in fact, they attempted to slow walk all this information to obstruct the prosecution and the gathering of evidence of the Biden family. And, and I can't emphasize enough. I say this uh, because people think it's all about Hunter Biden and he got charged. We, he had the, you know, this basically this slap on the wrist, if you could even call it that, uh, on tax taxes, by the way, without this evidence being released. Now, remember, the Democrats all claimed in this hearing that we need more information. You're, this is a half-baked uh, information. I was like, exactly. We need to get this information out so that we can let the DOJ do their job. They're saying, well, geez, we thought you backed the blue. You're attacking the FBI, <laughs> this venerable institution, the Department of Justice. Well, we know that Merrick Garland actually denied the U.S. attorney from being able to bring these charges, get a special counsel, either whether it was in Delaware or California. So he's lying. He had a hand in this. And I think it's important to note that this is about Hunter Biden, but it's more importantly about Joe Biden. It's how Joe Biden used Hunter as a proxy using his influence, his position as a senator, and especially as the vice president, to funnel money from foreign countries into uh, the, his own families by money laundering, tax evasion, uh, and also what we're finding out, all the other things that are associated with this, potentially bribery. We see obstruction of justice by the by the, uh, the Department of Justice in, in not allowing these to come forward. And the statute of limitations uh, being tripped by uh, delaying because now we can't get the 14 tax uh, tax evasion. Now we can't get the 15 tax evasion. And this is all deliberate because it lowers the charges against Hunter Biden. And we've got to continue to. This is now when, the, when it begins. And I'm going to tell you one thing the House Republicans really need to do. But one thing I'm really active with Chairman Jason Smith and I talked to him about it the other day is we have got to do an amicus brief. That's all we can do on the federal side to urge the federal judge not to accept this, you know, joke of a plea bargain with Hunter Biden. We've got to make sure they get into the investigation, expose Joe and make sure that the American people finally get justice on the Biden family. What I think is so frustrating to the average American is that whether it's this WhatsApp message or the 17 recordings or the money trail that James Comer and Jim Jordan and others on House Oversight have laid in front of our eyes. We've got multiple whistleblowers at this point. It seems like we're just stacking up evidence, you know, taller than we can even peer over at this point. And yet, again, nothing happens. And not only that, but the Biden family, even after this sweetheart plea deal for tax evasion and legal possession of a firearm, then you've got them going to a state dinner with Merrick Garland and Hunter Biden. Then you've got Hunter Biden jumping on the plane with Joe to go vacation at Camp David for the weekend. I mean, it seems to me that the way that they are acting is not only that they believe that they're innocent, but more so that they believe they're never going to have to face true justice or accountability. So what is next? Will we get to the bottom of this before the next election? 
Well, here's the problem. They are doing it in plain sight because they, I think, and this is just me uh, speculating, throw it right out there, put it all out in front, and people say, see, there's nothing wrong. It's just the Republicans complaining. And I think the biggest frustration for me as a Republican and for all of us as Americans is that we do not have the power to prosecute. We can continue to collect the evidence. We can shine the light on it. By the way, imagine if we didn't have our slim five-vote majority we would know most of this or any of this. This is why it's coming out. But we've got to get this information up. Imagine if Jason Smith were not the chair of Ways and Means, this would have been put under by, by the Democratic majority. They all voted against letting this information out. I think they're going to regret it at some point. But look, I'm starting to see that when we can get a president in place who needs to put on in the Department of Justice an attorney general who will do this? Who will prosecute? You know, under President Trump, that was one of the most disappointing things is that we had Jeff Sessions. He recused himself because of the Russia collusion hoax that we now know is a total hoax. Another example, the Democrats projecting hoax. When, oh, guess, in fact, who was doing the hoax? It was it was Hillary Clinton. Why is Hillary Clinton walking free? All of these people should have been prosecuted, should have faced justice. And they did not because we didn't have the aggressive prosecutors and the aggressive Department of Justice that we needed in the event. And if we, uh, God willing, we get a president elected, a uh, Trump or anyone else of, of the great candidates that we have, we must start prosecuting. We need to clean house. We need to get our, this. These institutions have no credibility. Every American feels intimidated. They feel like our government you can't trust. And if you're on the wrong side and the wrong party, you could be prosecuted for nothing. You could have charges drummed up against you like President Trump faced and so many Trump supporters faced who, you know, who were like a charge with crimes when they really didn't commit a crime. You know, they might have had a civil violation transformed into a crime or they may go to a county attorney like an Alvin Bragg, a county district attorney bringing federal charges against President Trump. That's how desperate they are. Maybe the Republicans should start going to the county, uh, Republican county attorneys around the country and start talking about prosecuting Democrats who are committing federal crimes in their communities. And I think part of the problem here and why this feels so insurmountable is that even if we do get a great Republican in the White House come 2024, a lot of Americans feel like the swamp runs so deep when it comes to the DOJ, the FBI, the CAA, I mean, you name it. It feels like there are so many agencies, so many activists within these departments working on behalf of Democrats that it feels like unless you just completely clean house and start over from the ground up, it doesn't feel like any of this is ever going to be solved. And a lot of us fear that we get a Republican in office, that these institutions, these agencies are just going to go after that president, no matter if it's Trump or DeSantis or anybody else. We feel like this runs so deep. How do you rid that cancer without yanking out the entire tumor and starting over? Well, one of the great ideas, we everybody talks about term limits, which I support, but the term limits on bureaucrats is really important and, and, and eliminating a lot of the civil service protections for these people. I've heard from numerous people who work either in FBI, DOJ. Remember, everybody in these dirty cop organizations is not dirty. They're beholden or could lose their jobs and their livelihood to the corrupt people that tend to be at the top. But if you cannot deal with the civil service system and you've got people who are blocking, as as they did, we saw in the DOJ from the witness testimony from very credible whistleblowers at the IRS, if we can't get rid of them and clean house from top to bottom, then we should talk about defunding these agencies. And that's something that's happening in the in the process. 
I, I look at a selective defund. I don't think you can just say we're not going to have the FBI anymore because there are good people doing work at the FBI. They may not be at the upper echelons making those decisions, but we have to start looking into are we funding organizations that are using our money to go on these witch hunts against people for political reasons? This is partisanship. This isn't about justice. This isn't about fairness. And I think that's one of the things we have to do. But of course, we have to have more than one branch of the government. We have the House of Representatives. We don't have the Senate and we don't have the White House. And it makes it very difficult. And we've got to get the American people to understand how important this is. It isn't a Republican-Democrat issue. It's a bureaucrat issue. And we have allowed the bureaucrats to run the show. And I come from a state like New York where we have a massive bureaucracy. All of our rights are crowded out, very similar to what we see in the federal government. So we have got to start cleaning house where we can. We don't have a lot of opportunities in New York because our governor is a Democrat and she faces a left-wing veto-proof majority in the assembly. So in our side, we've got to stick together as Republicans. We've got to deal with this whole issue of ballot harvesting. We've got to find a way to win elections. We've got to be as diabolical and grueling when it comes to this process. And I know I founded the Election Integrity Caucus. I, I, I know what I went through. I spent 100 days in court. I won by a very narrow margin in 2020. We engaged in legal ballot harvesting in 2024, 2022, and I won by 34 it can be done, but every single Republican across the nation has to get on board to ensure we win, to restore our constitution, restore freedom, and restore credibility to our government. And, and especially these very powerful agencies like the FBI, the DOJ, the IRS, they have so much power and they're abusing it. And we, I know we got rid of Nancy Pelosi, who mm -hmm. abused power like no one else. We need to continue to clean house and to stand up for our principles, our constitutional principles, which is what Republicans typically do. You've laid this out so nicely, but the thing that concerns me is that there is a giant disconnect between what you're saying, what we're saying on my show, what we're saying on conservative outlets and Fox News, and what the average American is hearing. Do you think that Republicans at large are correctly messaging how important this is, the Biden crime family investigation, getting rid of the corruption within the Injustice Department and the FBI and the CIA. Do you think that the Republican Party at large, along with the RNC, is messaging this correctly to the American people? And if not, what tweaks would you make to make it make sense to people that are not like-minded? Look, I think the Republican Party tries very hard. We have everything working against us. The media is against us. Uh, the secondary schools, all the colleges, institutions are against us. Now we've got, you know, we've got a war in our K through 12 schools with all the nonsense going on there with the teachers unions, you know, dominating and controlling and manipulated by the Democratic Party and taxpayer dollars going to them that we can't stop. We've got big tech against us. We've got so many things working against us. But one of the things Republicans do that Democrats don't do, we attack each other. We go after each other. Our media goes after each other because we apply purity tests. The Democrats never apply purity tests. I'll give you an example. If the Democrats voted and put a bill up that would say, on noon every Friday, we're going to slaughter innocent kittens and puppies, they would vote for it because it was in the best interest of the Democrats. You know, we actually think for ourselves and say, that's not a good idea. I don't think we're going to vote for that. We split off. We do need to stick together more. And that's what they do. That's their strength against us. We're in the minority. We have to cobble together uh, you know, more independence. We have to actually do better messaging. We have to be more aggressive. We have to be not afraid to take on 
uh, others. I mean, one of the greatest things about President Trump is he gave a lot of courage to Republicans. It's okay to come out and stand up for our sovereignty and our border. It's okay to stand up for our principles. They mean something. They're important. And I think that's a big, probably one of the most important things President Trump did, among many others. But this is where Republicans need to fight back. And I think we do try to fight back, but you're constantly getting hit off at the pass. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of Republican institutions, all different ones, that all work against each other. And, and, and I think that is our biggest problem. Honestly, what I do, because I care about self-governance, I explain every vote that I take on the House floor in detail. So tens of thousands of Republicans and people around the nation follow my website, tenny.house.gov. It's on every platform. I just passed surpassed my 500th vote explanation. You don't have to try to wade your way through the website in the, you know, the esoteric language that is often bill making. You go right to my website. I explain every vote. You can find out that the baby formula bill was not about baby formula. It was another deceitful right. uh, move by the Democrats really to give money to the FDA. So things like that. I explain and decode Washington so that we have self-governance. We have taxpayers and people that understand that our right is to have self-governance. It's not to have elites rule over us like the Democrats want, like the communists want, like China, like it happens in China and Russia and all of our enemy countries. We want to be self-governing. And that is the ultimate question. If we can't think for ourselves, if we can't understand what's going on and make good decisions about voting and understand what's grifting, what's not, what's real, what isn't, then we're not going to win. And that's how we win. We've got to be informed. We've got to be good voters. And we've got to get out there and don't go down every conspiracy rat, rabbit <laughs> hole. Figure out, you know, honestly, and, and, and independents like you and others who kind of call foul, you're not afraid to tell the truth. You're not afraid to say to someone, hey, that's not exactly right. We need this person fighting for us. That's what helps. That's how we right. win. It's all about better information. Well, I think you're exactly right, and you do an excellent job of that. And I think this is going to be, in 2024, a messaging battle and an election strategy battle that we, on both fronts, need to do better at. But I think that there's also a problem because within the GOP, you've got a lot of people that want to be what I call political influencers, <laughs> and maybe not necessarily lawmakers, but more influencers, and they want to make a name for themselves. They want to get a headline, and it works against the broader goal. But I appreciate you. Thank you for your continued efforts to work on this with the pay-to-play Biden crime family. We are all waiting and hoping that the House of Cards is about to fall. Thanks for everything that you do to help fight for our republic and for the Republicans that desperately need your leadership. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And thank you for what you do. We really appreciate it. Calling, calling balls and strikes <laughs> is what we really need to start doing. Well, I Thanks appreciate so much, you Shami. so much. God bless you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. God bless you as well. Up next, did you know the designer of the trans flag is a biological male with a disturbing, and I mean very disturbing, track record? The truthful therapist Pamela Garfield-Yeager joins me next with the shocking details. So we are officially four days away from the end of the most annoying, aggressive, and colorful month of the year, Pride Month. But sadly, the grooming, exploitation, and sexualization of children is a 365, 24-7 mission that we must confront boldly and unapologetically. So let's talk about the left's version of the Star Spangled Banner, shall we? The trans pride flag. Well, it turns out the flag's creator has a past that's concerning to say the least. Joining me now to break it down is licensed therapist and social worker Pamela Garfield-Yeager. Pamela, it's so great to have you, and we've got so much to dig into, but I want to start with this Monica Helms, right, really being hailed by the left, the creator of this trans flag. 
There's some disturbing history and backstory here in a memoir penned by Monica Helms himself, herself, that I really want you to explain to my audience because I haven't heard a lot of publicity on it. Yeah, I read about this from a woman named Genevieve Gluck. She is the one that founded Redux magazine, and she's done extensive research on this memoir and short stories that this man has written. And I don't think most of the left, uh, most of the people who are following the left are aware of this man. And basically, he writes about how he, since age 12, had used to steal his mother's panties and underwear and wear them and get really excited by it. Um, he also wrote about stealing underwear from uh, the the public laundry room or the I think the one in his apartment complex and getting aroused by wearing women's underwear in private. Yeah, um, those are a few things. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, again, so some on the left might not find that problematic. I mean, everybody's got their weird thing. Don't get me wrong. But there's so much. In this memoir, if you really go through it and with the cross-dressing and the, and the fetishizing, the cross-dressing and kind of forcing this lifestyle on his then wife. I mean, there's a lot of backstory here, but this person really is hailed as a hero by the left for creating this, this trans flag, right? You know, it used to just be LGB. Now it's TQA plus plus minus minus. I mean, it seems like every day that there's a new stripe or something added to this flag, but this goes even further than that. I know that you're really anxious to talk about this because just last week we saw that there was a symbol for autism that's now been added to this trans pride flag, which seems a little out of place to me. Can you explain what this is and why we might be concerned about it? Yeah, that infinity symbol that represents people on who are neurodivergent, they say sometimes, or people who are on the autistic spectrum. And the, I mean, this is because many people who are identifying as trans are autistic. I see this as they're preying on the vulnerable. They're preying on people who have the tendency to get drawn in by this trans identity because they have rigid thinking, they struggle socially, they're online a lot, so they tend to be more easily groomed. They have very obsessive thoughts and they're trying to find a way to feel better and feel like they can fit in society. And this trans identity is sold as a sort of magic pill. And instead of kind of hiding behind the fact that they're preying on people who are more vulnerable in this situation, they're celebrating it with a flag, which is really, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. A lot of this is about exploitation and that's what I fear. So LGB, you know, and then even the T in some people's situations is, is kind of understandable, but now it really feels like the LGB of the whole thing has gone by the wayside, and it's more about the T and the Q and the plus and the whatever else they've added to it, and that's where I feel a lot of the exploitation comes in with young people, whether they be autistic or not, looking for some place to belong so they identify as something, they start changing their actual biology, their physicality to match that, but it feels like it's more of an exploitation, and as you said, a grooming. But in states like yours in California, unfortunately, it feels like 
this is the letter of the law to affirm this. And I know that you go against the grain on that, but there's a lot coming up in California. California AB 957, which states that the health and safety and welfare of a child includes a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity. So if it passes, it would be child abuse. If one parent doesn't affirm a child's identity and the other one does, this could be weaponized in custody cases. So this is going far beyond some parades and some flags and some debauchery with bondage in front of children. This is actually going down to the core of the family. What is this going to mean for California? Yeah, this is really scary for California. And uh, full disclosure, I will not be staying in California much longer because it's just too much. Um, but California is really making a concerted effort to divide children from their families and to make sure children become lifelong medical patients and to just destroy their psychiatric well-being. Um, in the bill, it actually says how this is for the well-being of children. And it, it actually cites the fact that there are studies that say that if you affirm a child that their mental health will improve. However, they don't say what the studies are. And the reason for that is because none of these studies are valid. They've all been retracted because that is just simply a lie. And every time in the long run, this will hurt their mental health. Yeah. And, you know, again, you've got people that are grown adults that waited until they were 60 plus years to transition that truly have gender dysphoria, like a Caitlyn Jenner, for example. But then you've got young people that don't know what they are. And as you said, a lot of them are on the spectrum with some kind of a learning disability. So how is this going to impact, especially kids with learning disabilities, if they are automatically affirmed? What does the rest of their life look like after that takes place at a young age? Well, it depends on how far they go on their path, but even just psychologically, this will send them on a tailspin. Um, Walt Heyer, he is a older gentleman, detransitioner. He is now 82 years old, and he says he's still talking about what he calls the trauma of when he was four years old, when his grandmother affirmed him in this purple dress. And he says the reason that he considers this abuse, because his grandmother was giving him the message that he was not okay as a little boy, that as a little girl or wearing clothing of a little girl made him worth something. And this was traumatizing for him. And in the end, he, he also was abused by his uh, stepbrother and other people in his family. And he did become transgender for nine years in the 80s and has since come around. And he, he likens it all to this being affirmed when he was a young boy. And so I could just see so many other little children going through this. That's why we talk about it as child abuse, because that's largely what it is. And, you know, I can't help but think about hearing a lot of the backstory of a lot of these people that identify as transgender or non-binary people that, especially in the activism community, I wonder if you pull back the layers here, and I know that you would know this better than me, we've talked about it before, but how many of these people in the younger years of their life, or even to this day, have suffered some kind of a sexual abuse or trauma or have been a victim of uh, pedophilia? Is that a common thread here when it comes to people that are now, you know, non-binary, cross-dressing, identifying as queer? Is that something and a common thread that you've seen in, in abuse and how that ties all this together? Yes, very much. That's very much a common thread. And I think we're exposing children to such young sexual sexual content. Children are being exposed to porn early. They're getting their they're not, they're just not developing correctly when they're 
developmentally ready to expose to all this sexual content. And that leaves them open to being more exploited and to become victims of sexual abuse. I think this is all a coordinated effort here. And yes, for sure, the if you, if you listen to the stories of most e-transitioners, they will tell you almost all of them had some history of sexual abuse, sexual assault in their history. Yeah, um, you know, I was actually at an event last week and the keynote speaker was somebody, uh, a female who has been abused from the age of four for 14 years of her life. She was abused, sexually abused, sold by her grandfather for sex. And she described a time in college when she was very much on the left, chopped her hair off, didn't want to look feminine, wanted to be as butch looking as possible. And this wasn't because she was trans or thought she was a boy. This is because she was going out of her way to desexualize herself because she'd been sexualized for so many years. And I, I fear that that's going to be the same story with a lot of these people. But in California, if they come to a, a therapist such as yourself or somebody that isn't as truthful as you are and they, they have this trauma, I mean, most therapists in your field, most psychiatrists, would they then tell them, hey, you should be a different gender? Would that be how this conversation goes? Unfortunately, that's how therapists are being trained. I believe there are some out there that are like me that are kind of secretly working through whatever the underlying issues are and working with the families and working with the child as a whole person. But unfortunately, it's there those people are being intimidated and they're afraid of losing their licenses, so they're not they're not as common, they're not as easy to find. Um, but yes, that can happen and that is happening and that's what the training is telling us to do. So lastly, for parents out there that are watching this and they have children that they're concerned about or even children that have come to them and said, I think I'm trans, what advice and what guidance would you give to those parents that are in an incredibly difficult position right now? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, my first advice is to not get into a power struggle with the child or, or the young adult, um, but also don't affirm them immediately have have them grounded in reality. Um, probably the first thing you can do also is just remove their social media, remove their phone, because that's where a lot of this influence comes from. If you can take them out of the school they're at, um, if you can get them outdoors, get them to maybe a camp, it's, it's summertime, so maybe you can get them into a camp because a lot of this has to do with being disassociated from your body. And when you can get them more connected with their body physically, then one, they're just really tired and they can't ruminate on their gender. And two, they're more just embodied and they're, they're more connected. Because I mean, I don't know if anybody's experienced that when you're on the phone and you're scrolling, you kind of get in a daze and that's, you're more easily manipulated. Those yeah. are just a few things. Absolutely. And also get out of a state like California, which I'm happy yeah. to hear that you will soon be leaving, coming to a state that protects children, I hope. But we appreciate you always for being so brave and so bold. I know it's not an easy thing to do, but there are a lot of people that look to you for inspiration and guidance. So thank you for always doing what you do, being transparent, truthful, and honest, especially in a crazy time like this. We always appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Still ahead, long gone are the days of pride, joy, and equality. The modern pride movement has devolved into a sexual exhibition of fetishes, bondage, and eyeball-searing visuals. My final thoughts are next. Pride Month went from rainbows, love, and acceptance to, let's call it what it is, an international child-grooming freak show complete with nudity, bondage, and eyeball-searing debauchery aimed towards children. And I have some final thoughts.
So I am not gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans or queer or whatever the rest of the letters in the ever-growing acronym stand for, but I've never had an issue with Pride Month because I'm all about people living their lives, doing what they want to do on their own time and celebrating who they are. But that was until this movement started brazenly and openly targeting children. Members of the Rainbow Mafia and their apologists have maintained that notion and narrative is a bigoted, homophobic, transphobic conspiracy theory. Really? Okay, then please explain this. here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. They said it, not me. Now, to be fair, I'm quite sure not all members of the LGBTQ community feel this way or co-sign this kind of thing, but it sure would be nice to hear from more of them, you know, beyond just the conservative ones. It would be nice if someone would denounce this kind of thing. Oh, and maybe also this. What you're seeing there, and I apologize to you in your eyes, is a clothing optional pride event in Washington Square Park, New York City. Again, I am not a member of the rainbow community, but I still fail to see how this has anything to do with equality or civil rights for gay people. You know, maybe it's just me, but you think if you are truly seeking acceptance, equality, and tolerance, you could, I don't know, keep your clothes on? But as bad as that is, that display has nothing on pride up north in Trudeau-controlled communist Canada. If you think New York or California pride events are tough to look at, well, Toronto, Canada is coming in hot with a hold my Bud Light. Yes, that is the Bud Light sponsored stage at Toronto Pride. And in case you're wondering, I don't think that beer brand will ever recover and neither will my eyes, which have now been assaulted. But that's not all Toronto Pride has to offer. There's more. Wholesome. Lovely. But let me get this straight, no pun intended. The Toronto Blue Jays got rid of a pitcher for posting a pro-Christian anti-grooming reel to Instagram, but that city endorses and condones this? Canada is a lost cause, man. I mean, I guess that's what two COVID shots and five boosters will do to an entire population. So I say build walls on the northern and southern borders and let's be done with it. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show exclusive content on our Outkick YouTube channel. Like and subscribe from Nashville. God bless and take care.